Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Work, frame it, frana. I did it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have Merck Frana. Frana. I did it, you know. I'll, uh, Frana. Yeah, he's had uh, a ton of experience. Uh, he got in the military uh, back in uh, 2002, roughly, a little before that. Uh, he got into the Strike Eagle, uh, did that for a few years, uh, deployed in the Strike Eagle, and then went to the F-35. So at the 33rd Fighter Wing, he was some of the uh, one of the initial cadre, cadre standing up the F-35. Uh, went out to Luke to be a Luke Air Force Base, to be a DO, and then squadron commander in the 62nd Fighter Squadron. Bender, you got anything to say about that? Yeah, 357 in county. Spike, right on. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, so yeah, so commander of the 62nd, uh, and then back to Eglin to be the group commander of the 53rd, uh, which uh, is the test group. So we've talked to Slander. We talked to... Um, Rex Wysack. We've talked to a lot of people from the test world, so we just added another one. So, Merck, thank you for being here today. Please tell us about yourself. Awesome. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. Um, I really appreciate the beginning of it with the uh, with Merck's got a ton of experience, just a ton of experience, because it just means that I'm a really old dude uh, that you put brought on the yeah. podcast. So, uh, appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I've uh, I listened to a couple of podcasts podcasts that you've had in the past, and like you said, uh, Rex, Slander, Paco, uh, all those guys I worked with uh, in the 53rd wing in, in kind of one capacity or another. Um, but yeah, um, I guess I joined the military back in 2000, um, was a graduate of an ROTC program at the University of St. Thomas, went off to pilot training at Shepard Air Force Base, and then to the B course at Seymour. I did an ops tour there, uh, deployed to Iraq back in 2004-2005 time frame, then to the FTU. Um, actually ended up being DNIF for a little while in the FTU, uh, ended up going to get a master's degree um, there uh, in, in North Carolina while I was DNIF and kind of working my way back to flying, and then uh, went out to the 422 after that to fly some Strike Eagle test. Uh, that was kind of my first exposure to uh, test and evaluation. I think we'll drill down into some of that here uh, in, in the podcast. And then was lucky enough to be selected as uh, one of the initial cadre for the F-35. So went back to uh, Eglin, which is where I'm at right now. Um, you know, living life on the beach, flying fighters uh, was not terrible. 
Uh, got an assignment out to Luke. Again, a pretty awesome assignment out there. I got to stand up F-35 operations, then off to school in D.C. for a year, and then back down to Eglin. Um, and, I mean, I just had a lot of unique and awesome opportunities in the Air Force, sort of ran out of uh, – uh, I guess my my family sort of ran out of uh, ran out of airspeed, I guess, if you will, uh, and kind of got sick of, of moving uh, every two years and that kind of thing. And so uh, we had moved from Eglin Air Force Base once before and moving a second time was uh, was probably not palatable. So uh, looked to to transition out and now, um, you know, try to do some consequential work for the warfighter, uh, you know, uh, as much as I'm able to as a as a consultant. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the tough things. I mean, the military just asks you to move around and, uh, and you get a lot of great experiences, but your, your family is just sometimes along for the ride for that. So that's, that's gotta be tough with, uh, well, we've got Bender here, who is our resident F-35 guy. And, uh, I am now the, uh, fledgling, uh, F-15C guy who's uh, making more mistakes than uh, good decisions, but that's all right. That's life. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you kind of got in the military, what, what was your long-term plan? You know, some people have, Hey, I want to be a squadron commander or wing commander. Kind of what was your goal when you said, I'm going to fly fighters and. Yeah, uh, man, great question. Um, I did not have sort of the long-term aspirations when I joined the military. I, I don't know that I had an and after the, I want to be a fighter pilot necessarily. It was sort of a, um, man, that looks like a a cool way to make a living, uh, to do something, you know, important for my country. Let me, you know, see if it's something, you know, that I can do and can be a part of, and then, and then sort of see where it goes from there. And, um, again, just, uh, had a lot of, a lot of great opportunities. I mean, I think, I think early on, I realized that the organization um, is, you know, it's, it's a large organization. It's a large corporation. And, and ultimately, there, you have to find a way to differentiate yourself from the masses uh, one way or another. And a lot, a lot of times, you know, as a fighter pilot, that is trying to be as credible as possible. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of focused on that and figured the rest of it would take care of itself. Um, and, and then for me to kind of, from, for a differentiator, uh, you know, I went off and got a, a master's degree that my leadership really valued and they were, you know, hugely supportive of. And then I, you know, a lot of guys that uh, do that program do their, their time and then they get out and kind of go into industry. And I stayed around and tried to use that, the MBA that I got, um, you know, to, to, to better the organization and, and hopefully the people around me and, and, and try to, to, to lead with some humility and, and make a difference. Well, I appreciate that. Cause I think, you know, I always get a little worried when people are like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a wing commander. And you're like, you're Bro. not even through MQT kid. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> exactly. It makes, it makes me a little nervous. So I, I was in the same boat. Like I'm going to, you know, one thing I knew, I was like, I'm going to fly for 20 years. And, uh, and you know, the guard, I can still do that. But uh, so how, one thing I have a question with, and maybe, maybe Bender, I know we probably talked about this before, but maybe he's had the same question is when you go, when you're in a strike Eagle squadron, is it twice as hard, hard to stratify yourself just because there's twice as many rated officers in a squadron? Or is there like, how does that work? Cause you think in a single seat fighter squadron, there's just like, Hey, there's 30 of us. But when there's 60 people running around, is that even more mouths to feed with less opportunities or the same amount? You know, I think, um, obviously the, the denominator is twice as big, right? So, um, it, but ultimately, you know, the, the, the talent level, um, you, you, the, the, there's no question that the, that the talent is there as well. Right. And so, I mean, I don't know, man, I, I don't know how you guys look at it in, in your career, but, um, I never really looked at it as a competition, right? I never concerned myself with how that was going to play out. It was sort of, you know, try to be a good teammate, try to be a good wingman, um, you know, do good things and, and hopefully you'll be rewarded for it. But if not, you can look yourself in the mirror and know that you were doing good things. Right. So, um, you know, and even the advice that I, 
I guess, you know, again, now, now I'm kind of all washed up and, and retired, but when I was active duty, um, you know, well, I think just like you said with the, if you have the Lieutenant coming through saying, I want to be a wing commander, or I'm going to be the chief of staff or whatever, it's a little bit worrisome. And I think, you know, when people are worried about the stratification aspect of it or sort of, you know, what's the next step from a career standpoint, like it can kind of cloud your judgment on, you know, what right looks like, I guess. So, um, you know, just trying to be a bro and, and do what right looks like seemed, seemed to, I don't know, I guess that served me well. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question at, at all, actually, but, um, Anyway, that's my two cents. But I, I think yeah, it's I think so. it's a good way, and and you would hope that'd be the case. You know, you'd hope that it's like, hey, the the people who are good at their job, they're good dudes. You know, that it's going to work out for them. Uh, I remember uh, one of the dudes we were in uh, Bender and I were in Misawa together with. He his advice was always just be a good dude. You know, like just be a good dude, and it's probably going to work out in in all aspects. You know, be good at your job, be good in the jet, be you know make reasonable choices, all that kind of stuff. The, uh, so I'm currently going through a TX right now. So I am, I'm hitting the wrong buttons and and saying the wrong things and everything. So how was it transitioning? Obviously you had some experience in the strike Eagle moving into the 35. What, what was that experience like, uh, leaving test and then going to the 35? Yeah, no. Um, it's funny you say the whole, you know, hitting the wrong buttons and whatnot. Cause I remember, distinctly remember my first sim and this was before um we were there when we had the simulators installed but we didn't have the syllabus up and running yet and so kind of as the uh as the new guys you got a chance to kind of go in the sim and, and fly around and sort of get used to the airplane outside of the syllabus and i remember the uh uh, the sim tech was like just take the the teamus and do this and the we and do that and i was like dude i don't even know what you're talking about like, I, I don't even know yeah. what the switches are. Like, tell me what switch is which. And so I'm sure as you're making the transition from F-16 to uh, F-15 now, like you're having that same sort of, um, uh, you know, transition, right? Where you're like, why do I have to do this with my, uh, you know, with my middle finger on my left hand when I did it with my thumb on my right kind of thing uh, previously? But, uh, yeah, no, the transition was, you know, honestly um, – it was really a lot of fun. Um, we had a really good group of folks, um, you know, and we had really good leadership. The leadership did a great job in creating an F-35 community. And, you know, as much as you know, everybody wants to kind of hang on to their baggage, I think, for a while, right? And they want to be like, oh, I'm, I was a Strike Eagle dude, or I, you know, I was a C-model guy, or I was a, a Viper dude. And, and our leadership did a really good job of saying like, hey, man, we're all F-35 guys. We bring different skill sets to the table, um, and and we're building this community from from here on out. And that was one of the things that I actually loved about the F-35 community was I think there was a level of uh, humility uh, just kind of resident throughout the uh, the community, particularly early on, because you recognize that you know, I didn't know everything there was to know about seed, and I needed experts around me to help me be better. Um, in employing the F-35 and, and the skill sets that I brought from a, you know, um, air to ground standpoint were, were different than a lot of, you know, the, uh, the, the Viper guys that had made the transition. So, um, yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. I look back with, with honestly, with great fondness, um, of the, you know, the, the transition and, and, you know, um, kind of my career after that. Yeah. Bender, what do you, I mean, you went through the, the TX, uh, much more, or I guess uh, a couple of years ago, what, three years ago? Yeah. A couple of years, two, two and a half or so, Yeah, but it's, okay. yeah, so, it is interesting. Yeah. Just a couple of years, but even now I feel like things change so fast in the F-35, probably more so on the tactics side, more than the jet side, but even the jet side, you know, there's always stuff changing. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like for you, you know, like building from scratch. And it seems like every three to six weeks, it's like a completely new, I don't know, version of the tape that comes out and the tactics are just still so malleable. It, it would be, it's not frustrating, but it's, it's a fast moving ball game and I don't keep up super well now as an older guy. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely, uh, definitely unique. And I think, you know, that was the, 
I think the the piece that was was the part that was kind of common I felt like amongst all the guys um, that that were there, particularly at the beginning. And I think uh, you know I hope now as well was that yes things are are changing sh- so rapidly, and that's what's unique about being part of this program now, and being sort of the old crusty guy that was like, well this is how we did it when I was your age is like not helpful, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. getting into the books and, and trying to be, you know, as credible as, as, as you could be, even as, you know, whether it was, you know, squadron commander or group commander, um, you know, or, or part-time dude, whatever it was always about, um, you know, trying to be good in the airplane and, um, and, and really, you know, having an impact on, on, I think the initial standup, um, and the, uh, the community and, and also just, you know, the ability to have that impact and, and now see it kind of, you know, con- continue to, um, uh, I, I guess, spread across the world with, you know, airplanes at Lake and Heath and Isleson and, you know, Vermont and, and all that stuff. It's just, it's really, it's cool to see. Yeah. I think, yeah, uh, cool. one of the things oh, for, for everybody who's kind of not in the know. So obviously the, the F-15, a model came out and then the F 15 C model came out. And then, uh, I think short, shortly thereafter the, the strike Eagle was coming out, uh, and the strike Eagle was pretty much the air to ground version. So a lot of the switches and the interface was relatively similar for a while between the F 15 C and the F 15 E. Um, and then the F 22, uh, these are in general terms, were relatively built off of the interface of a C model. So a lot of the F 22 switchology or the switches you'll hit, mirror relatively the the C model where the F-16 it's fifth gen kind of follow on was the F-35. So an F-16 guy hops into a 35 and some of the, the teamists, the certain switches are, are named the same. They do the same things. Uh, and then, so, you know, Merck going from the strike to the F-16 stealth fighter and then Bender going from the F-16 to the F-16 stealth fighter. You're like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. Uh, And I'm doing the opposite. I'm going from the F-16 to the C model, which is probably the the switchology or what we would refer to the HOTAS, the hands-on throttle uh, and uh, stick, uh, is, is very different. The other day I was in the sim and I went to talk. So the F-16, it's your middle finger and it's a... Uh, or to index finger. I don't even remember anymore, but it's like a North South switch uh, on the front of the throttle. And in the C model, your middle finger uh, moves your ax symbols, not your cursors. But so I would go to talk and then I'd bump the ax symbols off the top of the, off the top of the screen. So I'm like, cool, I'm on 120 scope now. Thank goodness. You know, and nobody hears the thing I tried to say. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to be a challenge. Uh, so the so we've kind of talked previously about the test world. So obviously we have the 422, which is at Nellis, which is operational test. And then we have the 53rd, um, which is also doing test out at Eglund, also doing operational test, right? But they have embedded DT and OT at Eglund. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I really, I could probably, I need a PowerPoint slide or a map or something to, <laughs> to kind of uh, drill down on, on the details of this. And I'll, um, it's so so partially accurate, kind of what you said. Um, what, what I'll start with is a little story about um, the right start brief in the 53rd wing that I had when I was a captain at the 42. Okay, so, you know, the right start brief at the, at the wing level or whatever, right, every new, um, person at the, in the organization has to get the right start brief from the wing commander, right? Who has the kind of the spiel of what the wing mission is and and that kind of thing. And they open it up for questions at the end and everybody can kind of air their grievances with the wing commander, potentially depending on how, uh, uh, how much risk they want to take. But, um, so I'm at the 422 and, you know, I've been there for maybe six weeks. Um, we moved from, um, uh, North Carolina out to, Vegas, this was 2008. So it's like at the peak of, um, the kind of the, the housing crisis and whatnot. And, and, uh, there was a fire sale on houses, um, at, uh, you know, in, uh, in and around Vegas in, in 2008. But, 
um, we go, I go to the, the right start briefing. Like, like I said, we've been there for about six weeks and I go to a building that I had never been to before to get on a VTC with a person that I had never seen before, who then gave me a briefing about the organization that I had. Like it's basically, it's, it's the 53rd wing is spread across somewhere around 26 locations. It really varies like on a, you know, potentially like six month basis, depending on what new organization is standing up and what is sunsetting, depending on um, what assets we're trying to do operational tests and evaluation in. But I walked out of that briefing and I was like, I'm more confused about what it is that we do here now than I, than I was before when I walked in because the 422, when you're at Nellis, you kind of see operational tests and evaluation um, you know, from the seat that you sit in, uh, there in, in test. And there's some test management there at, um, Nellis in the 59th test and evaluation squadron. They, they do, um, um, the, the managing of test and evaluation. So there's engineers and analysts in that, um, squadron that develop, they, they write test plans, they do test reporting, they schedule, um, range time. They work with um, the different SPOs in trying to ensure that they're getting the right test points done, that kind of thing. Um, and you see that at Nellis. Well, what you don't see when you go to Eglin, um, Eglin is where the 53rd wing is headquartered at. Um, but there's now three groups inside the 53rd wing. Um, one is headquartered at Eglin. The other one is headquartered at uh, Tyndall, and that's the WEG. So anytime you do uh, any sort of, um, I guess, archer or hammer kind of thing, that's handled out of the, the WEG, which is the group is at Tyndall. And Bender, you probably see some of that in the 86th out at, but the squadron, the 86th Combat right. Hammer Squadron is at Hill. Um, and then uh, the other group is out at Nellis, and that's the TAG. Um, so, so now... I guess three groups in three different locations, all doing some semblance of operational tests and evaluation. Um, and what happens at Eglin is um, you've got, and I'm going to probably leave somebody out again. I probably should have had some slides for this. If somebody's just listening to it and they have no idea, um, or they, 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 it's it may be a little bit uh, brutal to try to follow. Um, but the 85th is the operational test flying squadron at uh, at Eglin, and that's where you know Slander was. He he flew in the 85th uh, at Eglin. But there's the so the 85th and the OFPCTF. So Rex um, Wysak, when he was on before, right? He's he's in the OFPCTF, and um, the 85th does the flying portion, if you will, at Eglin for the test that the OFPCTF. Um, manages, but the guys out at Nellis will also do some of that flying. The 422 uh, will will also do some of that flying. Then there's, it, it's probably not valuable actually to go through the list of all the of the squadrons, um, but ultimately there are some differences between uh, Nellis and Eglin. Um, but Nellis and Eglin aren't not the aren't the only two locations where we do OT. So there's Edwards. Um, Barksdale, so B-52 test. Um, you've got Dias for B-1 test. Um, Whiteman for B-2 test. Like, So um, I guess all that to say, if you wanted me to talk for the next 30 minutes and sort of build the watch, I could do that. <laughs> but I think maybe we should uh, uh, close it out and just like let you kind of ask some specific questions and we'll kind of drill down from there. Well, yeah, and I, one of the questions I always have is, is there a division of labor? Obviously, so in all these test organizations, there's different fighter aircraft. There's F-16s, there's F-22s. So at the 422, I think they have every fighter and attack aircraft. So the division of labor there, do they say, hey, we're doing most of our missile shoot testing at this one, and we're doing most of our OFP testing at this one, or our operating systems? Like, how do they break it down, or is it really whoever has the bandwidth? You know, I think... Um yeah, like the division of labor labor isn't necessarily perfect, but I think it's probably worth um, mentioning sort of what operational test is and who controls it 
at this point, right? So um, in the 53rd wing, we do what's called, we, they, I guess, do what's called um, MAGCOM test, right? So they do, they do tests and evaluation for the MAGCOM, for ACC. And what that primarily consists of is um, tactics development and um, material solutions for non-ACAT-1 or ACAT-2 programs, okay? So ACAT-1, for just for simplicity, ACAT-1 and ACAT-2 are expensive programs. So what that ends up typically being is most of the time an aircraft OFP is at a MAGCOM test level. So something like the OFP-CTF, right, is going to do the test management for the MAGCOM, and then the 85th and the 422 are going to go and fly uh, those test points for the OFP-CTF. Um, the D division of labor loosely, and I don't want to get myself in trouble necessarily because I think you know the, the the this may have changed, and the 422 commander and the 85th commander now might see things slightly differently, um, but generally the 422 because of the access to the Nellis range does more of the tactics development piece than the 85th does. But it depends on what the, the, the test looks like and what resources are required and that kind of thing. And then usually they'll, they'll work together to kind of uh, to execute that. So the, so kind of shifting gear. So obviously uh, we talked br very briefly that now you've, you've, uh, finished your Air Force career and you retired and then you started doing consulting. So how does it, how does it look kind of from the other side now? So you obviously work on testing stuff and we work on equipment or products that currently exist. Now, how does that kind of translate into future capes and trying to help onboard those types of things? Sure. From a, from a consulting standpoint. So I think what was interesting f for me was my transition out of the uh, Air Force and into, um, you know, flying air airplanes for UPS, um, you know, after kind of the initial training aspect of it, I found myself with um, some extra time, right? So even when you're on the road, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're tasked to fly at, at certain times, but you're not necessarily um, busy 100% of the time. And when I'm home, you know, I, I, I'm here at Eglin Air Force Base, and I still feel a connection to the warfighter. And so for me, from a consulting standpoint, um, you know, I, after I left active duty, I felt like there was still some unfinished business. We had been working on a number of different initiatives um, for, you know, I don't I don't know how much we've talked about it or how much you've talked about it on the on the podcast, but um with uh, we we were working on a number of different um, initiatives. So one was data analytics, um, and we were working with the uh, uh, Quick Reaction or the the uh, QRIP, um, I think Quick Reaction Instrumentation Pod, uh, and Knowledge Management, which is um, sort of honchoed by the Data Lab out at the uh, the the 59th out at at Nellis, um, and we were also working on different capabilities and, and future capabilities in modeling and simulation um, in a number of different organizations. And for me, I think those two sort of advances in uh, technology over the last, say, decade or so are critical to getting technology to the warfighter more quickly. And so from a consulting standpoint, I sort of just tried to insert myself, if you will, to kind of into, okay, how can I help the warfighter solve, you know, these problems by bringing, I guess, relevant members of industry to the to the table and seeing maybe where, um, you know, where things make sense. And so that's how I got hooked up with uh, with Julian and Crowdbotics Vader. And so, you know, if if uh, you know if you can see kind of how that 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 came full circle, um, because obviously they're doing. Um, they're doing some great work and uh, recently had some some good wins, uh, and I'd love to see them continue to provide value uh, for the warfighter because I, I think they're uh, they're the company capable of doing it. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think a lot of, uh, we talked with the CEO, Brian Stream from Vermeer uh, a couple weeks back, and uh, that episode uh, recently dropped. And he was under the impression that like anything the private sector has, the military already has. You know, he's like, oh, if we have this tech, I can only imagine what the government has. And, you know, I think the other way. I'm like, oh, if I have this, think what you could buy off the shelf, you know? And I think that's what a lot of companies don't even realize that, do we capture data? Tons of it. Do we use any of it? None of it. Uh, Very little of it. I won't say none. Uh, And that's where like a crowdbotics shows up and says like, yeah, we'll analyze all your data that you currently do nothing with. And you're like, yeah, totally. But the problem is them just understanding that we need that capability, you know? Yeah, 100%. I think the other challenge too is is, you know, the the just the process by which we go about acquiring things is um it's not necessarily overly agile. I mean, there's certain agile that's a nice way of putting it, right? <laughs> there are, there are certain um agile mechanisms, right? Uh, we've I think you, we've talked uh, before about sibers and j- different phases, right? And those are maybe agile mechanisms. There's um, you know, different um, advances that we've made with things like they, they call it middle tier acquisition, um, but essentially fast tracking um, acquisition programs. But for the most part, I mean, it's a long and bureaucratic process. And so, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people's paradigm may be that that, yeah, the military has the best stuff because they're thinking, you know, I don't know, military grade X, whatever it is. If you, and if you rewind the clock, like, you know, maybe 40 years ago, that might, you know, military grade steel or something, right? You're like, okay, cool. Maybe that's great. But I mean, if you were to say like military grade data analytics, like, <laughs> oh, like that actually means something pretty terrible yeah, compared no. to, yeah. you know, exactly. Or at least from, from the seat that I've sat in. You know, there there may be something that's happening, um, you know, behind the scenes at at a high level, particularly in the intelligence community, um, where it is fascinating. But um, you know, for for like you said, for the data that we gather from a from a sortie generation standpoint, I mean, just across 
not only the flying aspect of things, but also the, the maintenance aspect. Like there's so much information and our analytics of it, at least what I've seen is, um, you know, probably rudimentary at best. Somebody, it's somebody's like uh, fancy Excel sheet potentially. Yeah. Well, and you, you, you go into, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Vader. Bob's yeah. going to ask it. Can you give us a, for the audience, kind of a specific example of the kind of data that you're working with? I don't know if, it's uh, either two in the weeds or maybe it's, I assume not all is classified, but when we talk about the stuff that the Air Force misses or doesn't use, like, you know, it's a lot of data. So like, what kind of stuff are you working with? Yes. So, so I think just like at, um, at a very high level, right. The, the, um, the product that um, Julian and, and Crowdbotics have, have put together um, is a data analytics tool and what they did was they they got a sibber they synced up with um with seymour johnson um for a sibber and what they were able to do is basically capture tispy data off of um uh, off of the aircraft and then recreate that um that flight using the tispy data so time um space position um instrumentation right so it's basically just recording the the, the gps um but what they were able to do then is aggregate that. So, so that in and of itself, in my opinion, is like somewhat interesting maybe, right? Because we have the capability to do that across multiple different um, uh, platforms already. But what they're, what they're able to do is aggregate that data and then data mine it afterwards. So the one sortie is sort of interesting, right? But when you take a and individuals or potentially an aircraft's data and you aggregate that over weeks months years uh, potentially uh, you know a, an entire career now you have a data story to tell whether it's you know over g's on the you know the structural integrity of the airplane or it's you know an individual's ability to do something like a you know, I don't know, AB loop or threat reaction or, or whatever it is. Um, but that's the kind of data that is, it's sort of captured in a silo right now and it's not necessarily aggregated. And I think has multiple use cases across um, test, training, uh, you know, safety, a, a number of, um, you know, a, a, num a number of different areas. And I think it's just, right now, I think it's a little bit uh, sometimes, you know, the, the challenge is getting synced up with with sustainment, right? With the acquisition side and something that can really ensure that a product like this or this capability um, lasts for a long period of time as opposed to gets, uh, you know, cyber phase two and then sort of, you know, fizzles out after that. I think, yeah, I think that's oh, go ahead, super, then. sorry, I'll let you go back here a second, David, but so for the F-35, I think in the F-16, I think for all fighters, it's pretty simple. The F-35 obviously uses the tactics are very three-dimensional, if you will. Um, and it's a little bit different than what I was used to in the Viper. Uh, but the same, I think the Viper and the F-35, probably all fighters have the same kind of issue. Like we're pretty good at getting the data from a single sortie that a four-ship flies and digging into it and maybe finding a couple lessons learned, but we're, I think we're pretty bad, or at least one of our shortfalls is being able to spread that information to other four ships. So we try to do it by posting lessons learned or talking at pilot meetings. But like you're saying, like the ability to have the, the real truth data of like what one four ship experiences as far as like, you know, like where they shoot or what they, what they're doing with their altitude when they shoot or, you know, all these specific, you know, pieces of data that we kind of miss if you could aggregate that all across, you know, a squadron's training cycle for a year and then identify things that a force ship would never have seen or that a squadron would never have known that they all do a certain thing, you know what I mean? And then be able to no, like, reincorporate that back in to the training cycle or even to the 42, like, hey, test this, you know, out or whatever. I mean, that, that's all just missed opportunity right now. 100%. I mean, so I think what's interesting is that, you know, at least in the, in the fighter community, I think so much of our, um, you know, capturing of, of lessons learned and our, our debriefs 
are focused on um, tape review, right? And it, and we come back and we talk about truth data. I mean, there's obviously there's tape review, but there, and there's also you know ICADs or ACMI or whatever kind of you know version that that you're using. Um, but a lot of it is based off of kind of what you see visually, right? And what you can discern visually. And the reality of it is, is that yes, maybe 20 years ago, that was as much data as we were able to collect because that's what we had for data collection capability. And 20 years later, there's so much more data that can now be captured and analyzed and used to really determine truth data you know, and, and particularly when we're talking about, um, you know, the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, the IR spectrum, the like, there's a lot of things that you can't necessarily just see and um, and debrief to, right? So I, I think that the, um, the argument for data analytics is an, I think it's an easy one. It's just, it's really about kind of determining, okay, how, how do we inject this? And really now, um, you know, how do we revolutionize and how do we incorporate this into training, you know, tactics development, uh, like I said, safety aspect aspects, maintenance, all that, uh, all the, the kind of the different, um, I, I guess, use cases for it. I think uh, one of the things that, I saw because I, I too was was chatting with Crowdbotics while I was doing innovation uh, while I was on the active duty side, and every time you sit down with operators and leadership and everyone, and Crowdbotics says this is what we do, everybody's like, I totally get it, like exactly what Bender said, like, hey, I heard about this technology, I immediately think of way, ways to use it, and I when I think of it, I think of people. Some people who aren't kind of on the end user side, they don't realize like, wait, so you already have, you already capture TISPI data. Why do you need to capture TISPI data? Again, it's not that we're recapturing the same thing. It's not that our data, it's the analytics and the long-term understanding of what's happening is the big deal or the, it's like academics. Yeah, it's like academics. Like, oh, we already have an academic structure. And you're, no, 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 this is adaptive learning. Like, this is not the master question file that you review before your, you know, your closed book testing or whatever. Like, it is analyzing you as a as an individual and feeding you questions that will help you to stay as smart as possible. And data analytics is the same way. You can break it down by a person. This guy or this pilot has an issue with these things, or we already know via safety reports and safety analytics over decades, most times you have a class A, there is going to be one to two to three little things. A guy's going to land long and fast and he's going to pop a tire, or a guy's going to have a hot start that he didn't notice because he's not paying attention. And all that like they know you're going to see two or three of these things and then you're going to have a class A or you're going to lose a jet. And, and what you end up finding is like, we already know these things. And if we're running analytics day in and day out, then the analytics say, you need to be careful. Like the special interest item will come out before the class A, not after. Uh, and so that, that's the stuff that I'm like, that's, I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want that. Uh, and especially in new planes that we're onboarding now. So a T7 is a perfect example. You could get data analytics from the day it runs off of the, the factory line to the end of that aircraft's life for every student that flies it, every sortie that plane flies, and truly understand better the iron and the products that come out of that iron. So I'm flabbergasted when it's not an automatic. No, I think, I mean, so this is why I'm involved in it, right? Because, um, you know, I look at it really kind of trying to connect the dots between what I hear leaders in the Air Force saying, right? And, and the overall sort of, um, you know, strategy from the highest levels of government when you, when you like, so, so to tie this back to um, even, like I said, like the highest levels of um of, of government, the national defense strategy says that one of the, the things that we need to do essentially uh, is to get technology to the warfighter more quickly, right? And I look at like, okay, well, how 
do we go about doing that? Because I think saying those things, right, and, and saying things like accelerate change or lose and, and saying things like uh, Colonel Bradley just came out with a, uh, who's the 53rd Wing Commander, uh, with a paper that says that we need to accelerate, test, or lose. I think it's important to to not only say those things, but to come up with processes that enable that to actually happen. And I look at data analytics as a key enabler to ensuring that we can meet, um, you know, those uh, uh, those challenges. And so, that, and again, that's uh, I'm passionate about it. Um, you know, ultimately, I think it's consequential for the warfighter, and I can see um, a, a reason to to try to connect these dots. And so that's how I, you know, got into uh, got into doing this. Yeah, and one one question I had. So I've heard I've heard not mixed reviews, but I've heard different things. So as a innovation person, so obviously we have some innovators, you know, that listen, we have some innovation leads like spark sales, um, on the show. And sometimes people are hesitant to kind of push their innovation that they're working with their crowdbotics or their Vermeers or whatever company they're working with to their next level of leadership. Would you say when you were kind of the group commander, would you want that to kind of bo- like bubble up to your level and then beyond? Because in my understanding, that's the only way these companies are going to go anywhere beyond a SIB or two. Yeah, 100%. So um, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think if they don't make it to the, the, you know, beyond the squadron commander level to the group commander level to the wing commander, and eventually to the magcom, uh, the, the institution isn't necessarily designed well for money to flow to innovation at the kind of the operational end user uh, experience, right? So most of the money, in fact, all of the money that flows to a traditional wing is O&M dollars, right? It's 3,400 money, which means and that 3400 money or operations and, and maintenance dollars is sort of like keep the lights on type of money, which is all based off. I mean, that's the whole like why we fly out or why some organizations fly uh, um, out there flying our program. You know, why you've seen certain organizations go out and buy flat screen TVs at the end of the year or whatever it is, right? Like it's all based off of O&M funding and that O&M funding is pretty much just based off of the funding that you got from the previous year, right? And so if if innovators are scratching and clawing for those dollars inside of a, of a traditional wing, um, there's not a lot of like spare change in the couch necessarily, right? Like the, the dollars exist outside of the execution. I, I would say just primarily if the money exists, the money exists outside of 3,400 money or outside of operations and maintenance type of, of money and in um, acquisition. And so if you're the end user and you're working with these crowdbotics or you know other uh, companies out there and you're like, man, what they are bringing to the table is, um, you know, is life-changing or could be life-changing or um, – at least is somewhat value added. The conversation has to kind of go up and out the chain to to um, to the Magcom or um, you know potentially the half to kind of determine how to get it funded. Yeah, and I think can uh, I ask a question oh, on yeah. that? Unless you're going to Vader. But, no, no, hit a Vader. So I'm Vader's more. Uh, he's been right in the as an innovation lead, so he understands it a little bit better than I do, but. From our conversations we have from with some people, you know, we talk uh, spos, so program managers and people like that. Can you, and that's so some of the advice we'd be getting and giving to innovation companies is like that. That's who you ultimately need to connect with, right? Is the 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 people who control like what happens in this airframe or where money is put where for this airframe's purpose. If that makes sense. So is that is that acquisition type money to like dispose or, or what is the, I guess, I guess, can you define kind of that space for us and how that interacts with acquisition versus O&M money and that kind of thing? 
Yeah, 100%. So I, I'm not necessarily a, a congressional budget expert, right? Um, I, I haven't spent any time uh, on the Hill, but my understanding of um, how that how that plays out, right, is there's essentially 3,400 money, like we talked about, is the operations and maintenance dollars. And then you have 3,600 money, which is um, more uh, test evaluation and sort of uh, programmatic type of, uh, of, of money. And that is allocated slightly differently than your O&M funds. They, they, they call it two-year money. You may have heard that, uh, that term before as well, but those $3,600 flow to programs to acquire things, right? And so there's, I think the advice, and that's, you know, as I've been talking um, with other companies as well, ultimately, you know, sustainment dollars or sort of long-term programmatic dollars ensure, you know, more of a, uh, of a, of a, a transition to, you know, from this small business innovative research to small business innovative research. And then really what everybody's trying to get to is the sort of R and D type of phase, right. To the research and development, um, piece, because just the research aspect of it is sort of, I think you know, interesting companies still want to be to to be doing consequential work, but but really getting kind of um, you know crossing the, the the quote unquote valley of death there and getting to development is kind of is is where companies are trying to get to, and so yeah, my my take on it is that that you know being involved with and kind of trying to enter into uh, organizations that have access to thirty six hundred dollars is a um, kind of a, a, a more viable strategy. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the tough parts because I think a lot of people run into people who want the product but don't have the funding available. Even you go to ACC and they say, we like it, but we don't have any dollars for it. Uh, one of the things we talked to Emily Murphy, uh, you, who used to be the uh, Bender, maybe you remember, but she was the uh, pretty much like the director, director of the of GSA. Yeah, the GSA. Yeah. So she, she was knowledgeable and she said like, Hey, you can at the end of the year kind of like pick up any swept up money, random dollars like that. So we've also said like, Hey, you know, I don't know if that money can go to innovation versus big screen TVs, but I sure hope it can. Uh, so that that's one of the things I think is tough is if you're not using the Cibber 1, Cibber 2 process, it's tough to actually find people who can write you a check uh, and get, get that product onboarded in a commercialization type way. Yeah, and, and, and it, 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 I wonder, I wonder, like, how does like, the how does end the user, end user, like, user like, or you, like, you, like, you, when you were, you know, you know like, how do you, how do you get, get that message, message to, to the thirty six hundred dollars? You, know, you know what I mean? Like, where's the where's connection? the connection? Wing commanders, commanders meet with me with certain program program managers every once in a while. while. Like, like, how does how does that even? How do we how do we get there? I guess from an end user's perspective, I'm trying trying to like make something. Across, across the ACC, the ACC you know, like, like great program. I want to great program yeah. ACC wide. You know, I think, uh, um, I think what we're kind of uncovering here, right, is like is is sort of a you know institutional sort of process challenge, right? Because the institution, I would say, isn't necessarily well designed for sort of a bottom up approach, right? Um, and I think that's you know, part of the challenge with with some of the implementation of innovation across the DOD, at least in my experience has been there, there's maybe a little bit of a, of a, a lack of, of direction and sort of, it's a, Hey, you're going to be the innovation cell lead. I want you to think like a garage startup kind of thing. Right. And you're like, well, wh what does that even mean? Right. Like, am I going to, do I have, do, you know, should I be going after some kind of VC backing? Should I be <laughs> expecting some kind of funding rounds? Like, like, you know, uh, do I need to be worried about my, uh, you know, equity, um, uh, you know, set up in my in my company kind of thing? It, it's we don't do necessarily. We don't have, I think, the the process um, well defined to say, okay, with this innovation cell, this is what I expect to see with um, as far as results are concerned. I think you know to answer your question about how the process currently works right is there's this i mean there's there's a process at a very high level um across the dod 
to to do things like acquisition of major programs, which is, you know, the uh, the the Jason's process, which you might have heard about, but essentially, in that process, it's a you know look across the um, all of the different services to say, you know, where are our capability gaps. And then a look to try to fill those capability gaps with major acquisition programs. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? So when we talk about innovation from the, the bottom up, it's I think it's it's a challenge to figure out, you know, how to cross this quote unquote valley of death because the the process itself isn't well designed to to be able to say, okay, I have this innovation cell and this is where I'm gonna go from research to development yeah and i think there's there's some part of the valley death that's always going to exist you know like silver ones are going to be the most prevalent and not every company that gets a silver one is going to go to a silver two and silver twos aren't going to all make silver threes so i I understand there's going to be a level of attrition but the thing that always uh, that i struggle with is when we have attrition due to lack of understanding or a lack of an uh, ability to actually connect the right people. Uh, Cause I think you're exactly right. You get thrown into the seat for maybe six to nine months and you may figure it out right as you're leaving, which is pretty standard for, for most of my jobs in the military. Um, but you know, when it's this large, they say, Hey, you need a good acquisitions officer. You need a good finance person. But if you don't have those, then whether, you know, it's just, it didn't work out or you didn't find them that's where it becomes it becomes difficult to actually get anything across the line, you know? Yeah, and I think, I mean, so I guess from my vantage point, right, I mean, what I'm trying to do is, is, is take a look at sort of some of the challenges, um, you know, that, that existed in test while I was in that, um, that position that I know still exists and go out to industry to say, hey, can Pete, you know, is there somebody out there that can help to solve this challenge and then bring those people together? Um, you know, again, that's a little bit of a grassroots kind of effort. Um, but so far it's been, I, I think, value added for the warfighter and, and, uh, and ultimately, like I said, um, consequential. So, um, I, I don't know that that's the right way to do it necessarily, but, um, it's a way that I've found to do it so far. Yeah, Bender, Bender and I have had that conversation a lot because I think there are a lot of people out there who could create some amazing solutions. They just don't know that they are problems. Oop. I think we lost him. Hey, Merck, welcome yeah. back. But yeah, I think one of the things that Bender and I were talking about while uh, you had some connectivity issues was that it's great that there is uh, that there's people like yourself and other people that we've talked to out there trying to help bridge that gap because we've seen so many times where we have an end user knows a problem and there's somebody out there that can solve it. And there's just no way to get those two people together or no known way, you know, outside of you just having a network that you can connect. And, uh, and that's kind of why this podcast podcast became reality was because I struggled to understand this and my knowledge when I left was about 10% of what it is now of the space. And I've, I've learned more and more that I was woefully unprepared to actually do anything of substance as an end user trying to stand up a spark sale and uh, trying to get sibbers because the reality is I, I didn't know enough to even be that helpful. Uh, so ho- hopefully, you know, the work you're doing and the work, you know, hopefully the podcast is doing some goodness uh, to help make more companies kind of bridge that gap and, and become useful products that end users gain benefit from. Yeah, 100%, man. I, I think the podcast is, a, I mean, it's a great way to do it, kind of spread the word, right? And um, ultimately, I think, you know, your audience consists of uh, end users of of these products, right? The Warfighter um, and also industry, right? And so, I mean, ultimately, that's kind of the space that I'm, I'm running in as well, right? Between, um, you know, providing value to the Warfighter, uh, you know, industry and, and technology and kind of trying to merge those things together and, um, um, you know, provide, provide a, a benefit to, to not only to the warfighter, but to uh, national defense. Um, so it's, uh, I think the podcast is a great way to do it. 
Well, thank you. Well, Merck, thank you again for, uh, for joining us on the show is, do you have a, uh, email for your consulting or any way someone can reach out if they are looking to get some, uh, input from you or, uh, work with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Greg at Frana So, uh, pretty, pretty easy there. Uh, otherwise reach out on LinkedIn as well. That, uh, that works. And, um, yeah, always happy to have, conversations with you know it whether it's people making the transition out of the military trying to figure out where to land and what they want to do and and how to provide value or um you know if it's industry wanting to reach out to 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 figure out where to connect and and how to navigate through some of the stuff uh, happy to have those conversations that's great yeah we'll have the his email in the show notes too if you want to find it there uh and uh thank you again for coming on the show we appreciate it yeah right on thanks for having me yeah. this is great thanks mark appreciate it Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.